Welcome to the Weekly Tar Heel. You may be thinking, I guess they gave up on football season. They're finally back because it's time to talk basketball. Listener, that's not altogether true. We've lost at least two recordings to technology failure and life over the past couple of weeks. And we will be back on Sunday or Monday with a postmortem from the Wofford and Elon games, as well as a November look ahead. But today, football is still on the forefront. Joining me to talk the battle for the victory bell and where we stand overall as supporters of a program that has lost 19 of its last 22 FCS game, FBS games. Uh, Mr. Jacob Cowden. Jake, how are you, sir? I'm good, Chad. How you doing? Oh, man, pretty good. I appreciate you joining me. Um, a little bit of an awkward timing uh, as far as the podcast's uh, role, but thank goodness for your West Coast tendencies. I think I got you on your lunch break. Yeah, I'm at lunch right now. It's kind of a, a chill day at work, so it worked out pretty good. God bless a Friday. Yeah, um, obviously my schedule is kind of all over the place. So, you know, I basically reached out to Jacob this morning. We had a timing miscommunication. So here we are mid-afternoon here on the East Coast, but over in God's country in Arizona, Jacob is uh, more than happy to join us. It's 75 and sunny here, so I'm happy. Um, You know what? Off the air, I will uh, cuss you out for that one because I feel like you're trolling me a little bit. <laughs> Jacob, the heels are rolling into Wallace Wade Stadium. Uh, Duke is 6-3 and three on the year. And Carolina is playing in basically their own time slot at 12-20 on the uh, ACC regional networks. Um, just overall, without me prompting you, you know, what, what are kind of your uh, early keys to this game? Hello. Sorry, I think we lost connection for a bit. I heard you what are some, and then, then it cut out. Oh, what what are some of your key components to this game? Uh, we'll edit that if we need to, but I probably won't because I'll forget. No worries. I think, so I was just, uh, yesterday we were chatting. I was watching the Dukes game against Pitt yesterday. I was really impressed with uh, their receiver, TJ Rahim. He's a, their Z receiver, but he plays in the slot a lot, so both inside and out. So I think for North Carolina's defense, slowing him down, he's like one of those get third down it's receivers. So if Carolina can shut him down, put Duke in third and long situations, I think that's our defense's best shot of getting off the field. And you know our offense needs as many chances as they can get. You're right about that. Um, what's funny is on TarHeelBlog.com, by the time this posts, I will have three keys to the game, and one of them is – getting off the field in, on third downs because Carolina has been markedly, markedly worse at getting off the field on third down against Duke than Duke has against the rest of their schedule. Um, most years, they're about 10 to 12% better against UNC than they are overall, which is kind of insane. Um, it's speaking to your credit there. Um, it's one of those things where if they get into a third and medium, you know, they've really got the whole playbook open. So if Carolina can push them to a third and long, take away the element of Daniel Jones getting out of the pocket and scrambling for as many first downs as is seared into my memory from two years ago. You know, we've got a pretty decent shot. Um, I will say the other guy, the guy opposite our uh, Raming is uh, Jonathan Lloyd, and he's really stepped up here in his junior year. But um, you know, where Raming was kind of the guy last year, he and Lloyd have uh, stepped and have made a nice one-two punch for the Blue Devils this year. Yeah, they and they, their running game is pretty balanced as well. So that's a hard thing. They don't have a 
and Anthony Rattlers Williams were like a clear number one guy. So it's hard to defend because they can attack you all over the field. Yeah, and even at quarterback, they'll bring in Quentin Harris. He's played in all eight games so far. Um, you know, obviously he replaced Jones uh, for a spell while Jones had the broken collarbone. And, you know, for Carolina's injury troubles, for Daniel Jones to break his collarbone and basically come back within a month is insane to me. But um, Harris has been still involved in the running game um, in specific packages. So, you know, they can definitely attack you a lot of ways. I guess what I would be most optimistic about is they're not really great at anything offensively. Yeah, especially the first couple games, they beat Army, who turned out to be pretty good. And then they beat Duke, or Northwestern and Baylor pretty solidly. And it was the Baylor game, I think, where Jones got hurt. Mm-hmm. And then after that is when they've been – like, I thought after those first three games, they might be the second-best team in the conference. And they've been – markedly worse since then so you're right they're they're good at everything and that's kind of a, a cut lift thing to me just like you know really solid well coached but there's nothing spectacular about them so it's going to be interesting to see Saturday what plays out but they have been worse since that injury even though he's came back from that yeah and since he has come back um I'm not quite positive if he played the Georgia Tech game without diving in I'm pretty sure he did um According to Bill Connolly's S&P Plus, they were th- these are their offensive performances the last uh, four weeks, and basically there's a percentile rating. But 45, 35, then 90 against Pitt when they put up 45 points but gave up 54. So their defense was a 6% for that game. And then 26 against Miami. So basically what that's saying is overall they're not really meeting – you know, the expectation that you would have had set out just based on, you know, kind of the uh, average Duke performance. So that might bode well for the Heels. Yeah. And then, yeah, you know, the 12-20 games, like, I, it's such an early kickoff. I know it's Eastern time, but for me, that's like 9 or 10 in the morning. But, like, the early kickoffs, like, anything can happen. Like, it's hard to, like, get woken up. So if Carolina can get off to a good start, let's say they force a turnover early, Something like that, because their offense really has, especially the Miami game, it was in a hurricane, but that was just an ugly performance. And then, so, I guess what I'm saying is <clears throat> their offense, like, if you just look on paper, it looks good, but you just went into a bunch of the stats. Like, if you look a little deeper, they, they have been struggling in a lot of areas. So, they have some playmakers, but over they haven't been put complete games together for, for a month or two. Yeah, and, you know, if we want to talk about this as it affects the Carolina defense, uh, well, offense and defense, really, you don't know who's showing up on, on a week-to-week basis. I think uh, John Bauman over at IC had a really uh, informative little line chart of the offense's percentile performance that I just referenced versus the defense in Carolina's eight games, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. But, you know, kind of playing a factor in Carolina's uh in Carolina's favor here is that for the second time this season, they will have both Tomon Fox and Malik Carney on the field. Yeah. And looking back, you know, staggering those suspensions, it was, you know, look good on paper, but there's also the downside of the majority of the season. You're not having your best two players on the field at the same time. So it'll be good to see both of them back on the field. I think Carney will have, he'll still be the focal point. I think of Duke's deep offensive game plan, but I think he'll face a little less pressure, less double teams, less attention with Fox out there. So um, hopefully they can put together a good game while the offense does. Because like against Virginia Tech, I thought the defense was pretty good. But um, against Virginia, they were terrible. Georgia Tech, they struggled despite Cole Holcomb having a, 
I don't know if they struggled against Georgia Tech. They were on and off, but yeah. with Fox and Carter being out there together, um, I think we're gonna that's gonna help Carolina a lot. Yeah, and you know, Duke's not like a Georgia Tech or, you know, a team that's really reliant on either the run or the pass where if you take one thing away, you know, they can't beat you left handed. Um, so you know, it, it's good to have that balance and where you have edge rushers of that caliber coming off both sides, that's definitely going to play a role. Unfortunately, at cornerback, you've got KJ Sales out. You probably got Greg Ross, who has been the focal point of a lot of offenses in recent weeks. Uh, he'll, he'll probably be starting. But, you know, Cutcliffe, to me, is one of the guys that will more isolate a target like a Ross uh, than, you know, than most coaches who are just trying to simplify schemes for 18 to 22 year old kids. So I, I would say that would be, you know, what whoever uh, Ross ends up on, be that Raming or Lloyd, I think. Without question, they will lead the team in targets tomorrow. Yeah, because Cutler's like you said, he, I think he's one of the best coaches in the conference. So he'll he'll be able to put together like an NFL style game plan, almost where you are targeting specific players. Where you know most coaches just simple. It's pretty simple. You got like a lot of receivers don't even move sides of the field sometimes. So that'll be one thing to watch for, especially on third down if they get in third and long if Duke feels like they have a matchup on with a like a good matchup with Ross on the outside then they could be targeting that the whole game pretty much so that's where Fox and Carney will come in hopefully could not give Ross a chance to get beat that that would be the key you know just uh collapse the pocket on Jones don't give him time to um beat our inexperienced corners and uh pray for the rest um flipping over to the offensive side of the ball I mean I guess the elephant in the room is how KG is Larry Fedora being and is Kate Fortin a potential factor in this game? I, oh well, yeah, Larry Fedora, I haven't heard anything, but because when I saw the Virginia Tech game at my first instinct here, but I, I mean, I don't blame Fedora. Like Paul Johnson's another coach at Georgia Tech who, who's pretty quiet about injuries, but if Fortin can play, that makes me feel so much more confident about Carolina's offense and the chance to win the game just because he can do so much more. And we saw in the, the few series he did have against Virginia Tech that, you know, the offense is just so much more dynamic with him out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, w when you can stretch the field vertically, it opens up a lot. It's um, similar to two years ago when we didn't have a deep threat once Matt Collins went down. But, you know, looking back, I, I, I wish that that was our uh, biggest issue at this point. But yeah, but, you know, with Duke, uh, th their defense has been pretty, you know, across the board consistent. Uh, th their biggest weakness has been kind of the passing downs. Um, their secondary is a little inexperienced. They lost Mark Fields for the season pretty early on. So, you know, if Carolina does get behind the chains a little bit, having a guy who can at least threaten vertically gives UNC a little bit more of a fighting chance here. Yeah, because I think Duke's strength on defense is their linebacking core. Uh, and, you know, they're pretty solid against the run. So Duke Carolina is going to be in those third and long, obvious passing down situations a lot. And I totally agree with you that their secondary is the weakest group out there. So I just don't think Elliott can take advantage of that. I think Ford, especially stretching the field, but his arm strength uh, has a lot better chance to take advantage of that, that weak position group for Duke. Yeah, and really, you know, if Fortin goes, I, I would consider this game a toss-up. 
um, if it is just the Nathan Elliott show, it probably plays out a lot like last year's game where Carolina was competitive for a while, you know, got away with a couple of deep balls to Ratliff Williams to stay in the game. But the offense kind of runs out of tricks by the third and fourth quarter. And, and we've seen that more times than we can count this year as well. So, um, you know, not to belabor this, I mean, what is your one takeaway key to this game and what is your prediction? Hmm. Man, my <laughs> one ta- no, I think the one takeaway key as if we're talking about the offense is going to be the matchup because I Carolina's receivers, I would argue, going to be one of the better receiving cores as a whole they've faced for Duke, especially with Daz Newsom and Anthony Radliff Williams. So I think getting us being able to get third downs and Duke us being able to get them off the field on third down, that's going to be the key to the game. I do think Duke is going to win. I think it's going to be in like the 31 to 21 range. Okay. But I think if we can get them off the field and we can stay on the field, that's the biggest thing uh, for North Carolina to win the game. Yeah. And I, I'll kind of piggyback with you a little bit. You know, like I said, if um, if all this Fortin talk is just a smoke screen and Elliott plays all 60 minutes, I'm going to go kind of like last year, maybe a 27-17 range finish. Man, if if Fortin plays and plays, you know, even remotely decently, or at least just exists as a threat to open up running lanes uh, for Antonio Williams, Michael Carter, Jordan Brown, I think Carolina wins this game. Yeah, if Fortin plays, I think because Duke is honestly limping right now. You know that Pitt game, they were winning by two scores. I forgot the like biggest marginal lead they had, but. They really limped out of that game. They they haven't looked good for about a month, even though they put up a couple wins. So if Fortin plays, I totally agree that Carolina can win, especially because of you know what his vertical threat a does for our passing game. But like you said, it's going to be so much easier for Williams and Brown to to get running lanes. It just makes our offense not one dimensional. So I was yeah, my prediction was just assuming Elliott's going to play. But yeah, if, if Fortin plays. Um, I think Carolina definitely has at least a 50-50 shot. Yeah, and um, you, you make a good point, you know, saying despite the Miami win, you know, Duke has looked a little rough as of late. Their postgame win expectancy was at 32% last week. Um, you know, kind of won it on a turnover margin where, you know, um, they were not uh, – well, you know, this ain't going to make good podcast material, you know, just reading off a spreadsheet, but – Basically, Duke, Duke got lucky to beat Miami last week. Um, you know what? Go Heels, paint that victory bell, paint that locker room, make Duke complain about uh, vandalism again. Um, Jacob, we've been kind of going back and forth over this for a couple weeks as technology and life have gotten in the way a little bit. But Carolina's sitting at 1-7. and seven. They're 3-9 and nine last year. Um, you can point to two common denominators. One we've talked about as the quarterback play, and then the other one would be the man in charge. Um, I felt like this would be an appropriate time. Stephen Godfrey at SB Nation had a good, well-sourced uh, piece on where people stood on Larry Fedora outside of the program at a 30,000-foot view. Where does you, Jacob Cowden, the fan, sit at um, in the Larry Fedora era at this point? Yeah, we talked a little bit before the season, uh, before the one and seven season, and I actually was pro Larry Fedora, and my biggest reason for keeping him 
was because he's been doing so well in recruiting. He's that top 30 recruiting classes the last few years at least. But uh, if you look right now, it's early in the recruiting cycle, but Carolina's at 14, or excuse me, they're 12 out of 14 ACC teams. They have no four or five-star prospects. So they're last in the, the state of North Carolina. Even Wake Forest has two four-star prospects. Uh, the Overall in the country, their, their recruiting class is ranked 58th. So that's where I look. Like, if you're not bringing in talent and you're losing, then, then I think it's time to go. Because before he was losing, but at least he was bringing in talent. So it gave me the false hope of the Butch Jones hope, if you will, at Tennessee of being able to put it together at some point. So as of right now, um, with the recruiting as it is, I think it's time to get a new new guy. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree with you just if we're talking from a recruiting angle. Um, whatever pitch that opposing coaches are using to say, hey, they're on the way out, you know, that's not the coaching staff that's going to be coaching you, it's obviously working, and that's just going to carry over into next year if Larry Fedora is still in there. So you're basically tying a hand behind the next coach's back. So, for, I mean, just from a pure recruiting perspective, it's probably time to go. Um, because, you know, you, you don't want to be in a situation where you have a good bounce back year in 2020 or 2021, and then your coach, you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, name whatever coach, Jeff Brom or, well, Jeff Brom's going to Louisville, but you know, say a, a Matt Campbell or a PJ Fleck or whoever, all of a sudden years three and four after they go 10 and two and nine and three, you have a roster just replete of upperclassmen. Um, yeah, a recruiting class, a bad recruiting class sets you back three or four years, even if your other classes are good. Just one bad recruiting class can really set you back. You can get away with one, in my opinion. I don't think you can get away with two back to back. From an on field perspective, you know, I think we talked about it enough in the Slack channel where after the ECU game, I think we wanted to leave him in Greenville, make him walk home. Um, They came back and beat Pitt. You know, it was nice to get a win. And they have been competitive pretty much ever since. You know, I mean, Syracuse and Virginia Tech are two games that if you played them out that same way with the same stats, you know, 10 times Carolina wins seven or eight of them. Um, I'm impressed that this team has not quit on the coach. And yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, I agree with you. And that's mentioned in the article that some of the other conference coaches say, like the team hasn't quit on him, which really speaks to Fedora because the one in seven season, that's a lot of losing. And that is really hard. So I was just agreeing with you that that's probably his best argument for staying. Mm-hmm. I think so far. And well, and I, I enjoy that opposing coaches are vouching for him because if you have, you know, Paul Johnson was one of the guys that was uh, sourced and then, you know, you had an anonymous guy from the SEC and a couple of anonymous ACC assistants. Um, they have a vested interest in making sure North Carolina is bad. So to, to hear yeah. coaches given the vote of confidence is a little bit of a red flag for me, just that they would uh, come out and speak openly about that because another thing that article says is, you know, it's pretty much a turnkey operation. Somebody could come in and win seven or eight games with this team next year. And I'm sitting here thinking, if that's the case, why isn't Larry Fedora winning seven or eight games? And I guess that would bring me to the third point of, you know, just the absolute utter failure of capitalizing on Mitch Trubisky in quarterback recruiting. 
Yeah, it's well the same opposing coaches. They're not saying quite nice things as they're while they're recruiting the same kids Carolina's going after. So that's, that's we are talked about that a little bit, but um, yeah, I mean Trubisky was a number three or two pick overall. I forgot two, but you know top two like top two pick, and uh, they went to what the Sun Bowl and lost to Stanford, right? Mm-hmm. And Stanford played really good in that game, but you know and. Uh, if that's the best you're going to – it's kind of like – my thought is, like, after seeing Mr. Trubisky and then the struggles so long after that, you – like, someone like Trubisky who has that high recruiting profile, has that high NFL draft stock, and getting to the conference championship was great, but there you should at least make a bowl game after he's gone based on the recruiting you're bringing in, the quarterback recruiting as well as, you know, every recruit. Because North Carolina is a national brand, so it should be easy for them to recruit. So my point that – you know, Fedora's doing a good job at recruiting. Uh, I think in August or July, but you brought up like, well, everyone does a good job recruiting in North Carolina. That's not the problem. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this is, I mean, as far as since the internet has existed, this is a historically bad recruiting class for UNC. You touched on it. No four star guys. I mean, really the type of class you would expect a Kansas to bring in. And that's that, that ain't good. Um, I guess, you know, the last kind of factor to discuss is, I mean, because I think we're both kind of on the same page where it would take a lot of doing to convince us that Fedora deserves another year. But if hypothetically Carolina were to beat either Duke or State and show some process with um, with perhaps Fortin, you know, kind of showing a little proof of concept as a quarterback of the future, does that sell you on giving him another year? I think in a vacuum it does, but it'd be the exact same thing last year. Like, let's say we beat Duke or State. We hopefully beat Western Carolina. The same thing. We win two out of three games to end the year, finish the year three and nine with a lot of young talent coming back, and uh, it should be what improved quarterback play. And I thought, based on that, we were going to get to at least bowl eligibility or be be competing for that. Um, But that's just setting us up for another – rough season next year so in a vacuum it would be but it's the exact same thing that's happened last season and last off season is why i think especially with the recruiting the way it is that there's not really a whole lot to do to save it the only thing i can think of that would save his job is if for some reason north carolina doesn't want to pay the buyout yeah and and that's a really bad way to run a business because i would think carolina would lose that revenue in ticket sales and concession sales and donations if um, he stays on board after another three and nine season. And yeah, I mean, let, let's call it an unconvincing win tomorrow and then a win over Western Carolina and then another loss to state. You know, that that is not really proof of concept. That's just delaying the inevitable. Um, I guess real quick, I mean, if you were Bubba Cunningham and you went ahead and made the move to fire Larry Fedora, who are guys you would be looking for as your uh, list of potential coaches because the other thing that the Godfrey article said was there's absolutely no shortage of coaches who would love the opportunity to come coach at North Carolina because like you said good recruiting area huge national brand you got the Jordan brand that excites kids I mean it, it it really you know Carolina has underachieved historically to an extent that kind of blows my mind and makes me wonder why I still follow this damn sport yeah 
Uh, it's it's been rough. I think two names off the top of my head, and now being out in the West Coast, that's probably why I'm thinking of them right off the bat. But uh, Utah State's head coach Matt Wells, Utah State. I'm actually from Salt Lake City, and they they were just they were Kansas basically when I was growing up, and they're they're in a like they're on one lost season right now. Um, he's turned Utah State into a really good mid major program. I think he would be able, especially going from Utah State in a small town in Utah to Chapel Hill with all the resources North Carolina has, I think he'd be a really good hire that not a lot of people are talking about as, you know, next big hire. Uh, the other obvious one, I think, is Brian Hardison, just because he's at Fresno, or excuse me, he's at Boise State. He was the offensive coordinator under, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Oh, Chris Peterson. Under Peterson, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot that. But the offensive coordinator under Peterson, now the head coach at Boise State, they're just, you know, they're they're a good program. I think Matt Wells would be a better hire, but if either of those two can move across the country, I think those would be good hires. Uh, also, not super expensive hires, especially if they're paying a buyout, but they'd be able to get the program back on track. Because uh, so, they've done a lot with a lot less than North Carolina has. So as a West Coast guy, I mean, do you think culturally that is a good fit? Because Matt Wells has always intrigued me. Um, you know, I know Utah State underachieved at least versus expectations during the Chucky Keaton years because he was, uh, you know, he just couldn't stay on the field. Um, so, you know, hadn't really followed them, but then have been kind of fascinated by their quick ascendance this year. Um, that that's That's a name that I would not have even put on the top 10 or 15 list, but does he have like any East Coast ties at all? He, he doesn't, and that's why when Bronco Mendenhall, Virginia's coach, he went from BYU to Virginia. He kept a lot of, you know, East Coast staff for recruiting. I think Eastern Carolina's head coach became his defensive coordinator, or he's on the staff, I know. So Matt Wells would have to move a lot of his staff with East Coast ties, especially for recruiting in, in Florida and Georgia. Uh, so I think that's the, the, the biggest hang up on him is he doesn't have a lot of East coast ties. He's been mostly, uh, in the West coast. Yeah. And, and from that standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking kind of to your Northeast and to my Northwest over at what Matt Campbell's doing at Iowa state and had a pretty, I mean, he's in his third year there and they're in the top 25 again, they beat Oklahoma last year. Um, competitive on a week-to-week basis with probably the second-worst talent base in the Big 12. And then P.J. Fleck um, has not really gotten it all together at Minnesota yet, but is a personality that I think would energize the fan base and, from people I know, has you know expressed extreme interest in the Carolina job both two years ago when it looked like Fedora was going somewhere and as recently as last year. Yeah, I think Fleck would be a bigger splash hire for sure. I'd probably be more excited about Campbell just because he's done more with less. Because Iowa State, like you said, it's impossible to recruit there. And and he's done a really good job. Beat Oklahoma last year. Has another uh, – I think they have a top 25 win in each of his three seasons. And this year they're finally getting it together as far as bowl eligibility. They're having a really good year. So I'd be more excited about Matt Campbell. I uh, Because he's doing so well – I was hesitant just because I'm not sure if he'd either leave Iowa State or go, you know, get a different job. But if he did, North Carolina, I'm sure, would be at the top of his list. So I think Fleck would be a bigger splash, but I would be more excited about Matt Campbell um, out of those two names. I, th- I think I would, too. And I guess the biggest fear with really either one of those guys is if uh, the Ohio State job opens up, which I'm 
I, I can see Urban Meyer doing the whole, it's time to focus on my family routine again. Yeah, it sounds like he's, you know, combined with their seat loose to Michigan this year, he could, with the health problems and everything else that went on at Ohio State this year. If Ohio State, I'm interested in, I know this isn't an Ohio State podcast, but their offensive coordinator, Ryan Day, who was the interim coach, I'm interested to see if he gets any head coaching consideration. Uh, I don't think he'll get the Ohio State job, but somewhere he might get some consideration. That's something I'm interested to see. He he strikes me as a guy who would definitely land like an AAC head coaching job. I mean, ECU's probably going to open. Uh, I mean, yeah, some like group of five team um, mm-hmm. start out there. Kind of like what Chad Morris did, go to SVU and then went to Arkansas after that. Yeah, and, you know, just to talk about the AAC, there, there's not really a slam dunk candidate out of that group this year, which, um, you know, I it's, it's kind of, a, it seems like it's going to be kind of a depressed uh, coaching market season, which I would say would be an advantage for Carolina. Because, yeah, because. Uh, well, sorry. I, I, I was going to finish that statement by saying, you know, Half the SEC replaced its coaches in the past two years. Um, there's a lot of movement in the Big 12 over the past couple of years to where, you know, your up-and-comers market is a little bit depressed. And there are also no big jobs opening. I, I can't imagine that Auburn's actually going to fire Gus Malzahn. I think that's message board talk. Um, UNC would be in a good position, but there's just not that slam-dunk guy that forces teams to, you know, make a move maybe a year early like, when Georgia fired Mark Richt after a 10-win season to get Kirby Smart. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting supply and de- demand dynamic, but you would think if you were UNC, you would have the demand dynamic in your favor. Yeah, especially because the other job that is for sure open is Maryland. And despite, you know, the talent base they have in the D.C. area, there's not really a whole lot that would draw me to want to coach at Maryland over North Carolina, who has – you know, they got Georgia, Florida, North Carolina even has a lot of talent, in-state talent. And they're like three hours away, four hours away from D.C. So I think North Carolina would have the edge over the Maryland job for sure. That's the only one that's for sure open. I agree. I don't think the Auburn job will be open. Um, I'm trying to think other jobs that might be, would be. Um, you could make a case for Southern Cal, maybe. I, I think it's a year too early for that, but. You know, yeah, West Coast guy. Like, I think Clay Helton's extremely underachieved yeah. at, at Southern Cal just because I think they should never lose at least the Pac-12 South with the talent they have. And um, there's really no, like, every other West Coast school is, you know, good, like Oregon, Washington, Stanford are good programs, but none of them have USC's. So what the lack of what he's done, I think, if he was doing what he's doing at, like, Washington State, that'd be cool. But at USC, they have much higher expectations. So I think he'll be gone in a couple of years if he keeps it up. Yeah. But, and I guess to the point, you know, just to kind of circle it all back in, when your options are be the best job available on a market that is maybe not the greatest market, but you can kind of go, you can approach names like a Campbell or a Fleck that are power five coaches with a track record. Um, versus next year where you could look at USC almost certainly being open if something doesn't change drastically there. Auburn with less of a buyout. Um, who knows if Lincoln Riley is going to go like to the Cowboys or something at Oklahoma. And then other schools, I mean, Ohio State, uh, you know, Mark D'Antonio, Zach Skangold at Michigan State. I mean, th- there's just a lot more 
risk where you might be the sixth or seventh best job on the market next year. And this year you could kind of have your pick of the litter. So if Carolina is going to uh, give, give that away over, you know, concerns over a $10 million buyout, that is problematic just when looking at the state of the football program as a whole. Yeah, because, yeah, we've seen from Fedora, I think, even if he gets those two wins, he's not the guy despite getting the one the conference. So I, I just don't see what bringing him on another year would do. I feel like he's shown us enough. Or we have a big enough sample size. I, so might as well make the move right now. I can't figure out a way to um, objectively disagree with you, though, if he – somehow won the next three games convincingly, um, you know, on one side that would at least be progress and you would have wins over your rivals to tout. But on the other hand, you have burned Kate Fortin's red shirt. So, yeah, um, I, yeah, I think the argue, the biggest argument is like you said, he has, uh, you know, he hasn't lost the team. The team still seems to be into him. And also if Kate Fortin plays really well and he's the guy who recruited Kate Fortin and developed Kate Fortin, that could be the other, argument for keeping him but but you would wonder guess, you'd wonder why a guy like that hasn't been on campus since they recruited Trubisky in their first year right yeah, yeah exactly yeah so you know as with all things Jacob it is somewhat nebulous uh we we could talk it to death but I think our opinions are known now um although the ways we have reached those opinions you know leaves room for interpretation. So I think that is a wonderful place to probably call it a day. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have figured out a lot of our technical difficulties, assuming I am able to post this podcast, of course. So we will be back. Um, I will be joined by a nice little round table to discuss the uh, Wofford and Elon games. Um, probably recording Sunday night. will hit your earballs on Monday. Uh, Jacob, Anything you've got to plug that's uh, either out this week or coming up in the next? Nothing this week. Next week, I think I'm going to do, you know, players who have been shown most improvement this season. Uh, That Newsom inspired me to write something like that. So that's probably what that's what I'm working on. Just started for next week coming out. Nice. Well, I I will definitely look forward to that because um, having had to miss a, a couple of the games due to scheduling conflicts in October, I want to make sure that I haven't missed anything. Um, Daz Newsom, you know, Dominique Ross, who has seen his playing time dwindle while being a feast. Um, that'll be a good one. For me, I've got yeah. three things to watch for the Duke game uh, coming out as this podcast posts, probably. So please be sure to read that. Uh, as Jacob and I both discussed, third downs are going to be the key to the game tomorrow. Other than that, uh, keep it locked here, and we will be back with more podcasts. Thanks for listening. and. Go subscribe, leave a five-star review. If you leave a five-star review and put some words behind it, I will read those words on air. Uh, You can say something stupid. You can say something complimentary. You could say whatever you want to. Um, My buddy John once posted the lyrics to Shania Twain's that don't impress me much, and I had to read them on air. So please do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. Until next time, go Heels.